Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Our scripture reading this morning will come from John, the 13th chapter, verses 6 through 17. John 13, 6 through 17, and I'll be reading from the New King James. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, what I am doing, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed his feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Good morning. Before we begin the sermon, I want to remind parents that in a few minutes after the worship is finished, we'll take a brief break and then we'll come back for Bible classes. Sixth grade and older will stay in the auditorium. This auditorium uh, is, is not the way that I like it because we have so many of our people missing, but this is a church that really emphasizes young people. And we have a lot of young people. Uh, Cindy and I got back last night from Lads to Leaders, and, and I suppose there are some of you who are unfamiliar with Lads to Leaders, but really it kind of launches our lesson for this morning. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Bible says that the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. What does that mean, Word became flesh? Well, you say, well, Jesus became a human being, and, and that, that's, the, that's the meaning. Well, it, it's true. He is the epitome of truth. John chapter 14 and verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. He is the epitome of truth. The Word became animated in Jesus Christ. He is the Word. Well, couldn't you just let us have it in writing? Why did He have to come to be Word in flesh? And the answer is this. He came to show us. Show us. You can remember, remember being a kid, can't you? You remember how you learn things the best? I do. My father taught me how to cast a fishing rod, an open face, saltwater fishing rod. And I could do a pretty good job of it back then. I know how to use a skill saw without cutting my thumb off. Got both of them. Showed me how to do it. Last of Leaders is like that. Last of Leaders maintains the autonomy of every congregation of the Lord's people. All it does is to facilitate getting people in the congregation, the older people, the adults who know how to do something, 
to get them linked together with the young people to say, let me show you how to do it. And so we teach speech and we teach debate and we teach song leading and we teach scrapbooking and we teach all sorts of different things that make up Lads to Leaders. And then we come together and that's what we've been doing the last few days. And we got lots to talk about with how our kids did and you're going to be very pleased with that. But it's just this. It comes down to some very simple principle. Let me show you how to do it. Now hold that thought a second and appreciate that the New Testament, which is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, isn't just broad theological principles in following Jesus. It is that, but, but there's more. It has to do with specifics where the Scripture will say, here's what I want you to do, and I want you to do it like Jesus did it. I mean, you think about verses which underscore the fact that we imitate Jesus. We're disciples. So Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor, Matthew 11 and 28. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. What are you doing here, Jesus? I I came to show you how to do it. Or Philippians 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you which was first in Christ Jesus. Or Matthew 16, 24, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross to follow me. Or Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I want to give you five passages this morning. So get your Bibles and let's Let's trek through these together. I want to take a needle and thread and sew them together. Five passages, and what they bear in common is that each of them are passages where the text says, I want you to do this thing, whatever it is, and they're rather diverse, but I want you to do this thing the way that Jesus did it. All right, let's begin. First Peter chapter 2, and this first one is, when I suffer from my faith, when I suffer from my faith, Suffering from your faith is not the same thing as simply suffering because you're immortal. There are things that we endure because we're people. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about things that are a direct result of the fact that I serve Jesus Christ. Now, here's 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. For this is commendable because if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you're beaten for your faults? if you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. I don't, I don't like to hurt. I've never enjoyed pain very much. I'm funny that way. And there's this old joke, you know, that, that goes... Man goes to the doctor and he says, doctor, it hurts when I do this. The doctor says, well, don't do that. I think that's a very natural thing. But Christians are different about this. That is to say that when we suffer because of our faith, and it hurts, we just keep right on doing that because serving Christ is more important than our pain. Sometimes people suffer because of their employment, an employer wants them to do something or things that are contrary to the conscience. Maybe it has to do with dishonesty. Maybe it has to do with some kind of worldliness. And if you want to be a team player, you got to go along with the rest of the group and you just can't because you're a Christian. And sometimes a person's job is jeopardized because of his faith. That's suffering for your faith. Sometimes it's because of friends. And in this room, we have people who are relatively new Christians. And what it's meant in their lives is that I I can't do the same things I used to do and the people who have been so close to me and now it's not so close. And 
And I miss them. I miss them. But what's happened is that what I'm doing, how I'm living now, is gradually creating a chasm between us. And it may be your spouse. It may be that a Christian is married to an unbeliever, and as a result, there's just, there's just pain that comes. And Jesus showed me how to do it. He left us an example. So Mark 14 and 36, in the garden, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But wait a minute, what's more important is not me. What's more important than this and the fact that I'm about to suffer for my faith, however it may be. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I learned from him how to suffer for my faith. All right, here's number two. Same thing in this passage. When I want to be a great husband. In this room, we have a lot of great husbands. And if you want to know whether or not a man is really a great husband, just ask his wife and she'll tell you. We've got some great husbands. Now here's Ephesians 5 and 25. Husbands, love your wives. And he could have stopped there, but he didn't. And he carried it, carried it farther, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, this is just fascinating because Jesus was never married, never had a wife. But the analogy is that he was married to the church. The church is described in more than one place as the bride of Christ. And so it becomes an illustration. I want you to treat your wife like Jesus treats the church. Now, how is that? Uh, you, could, you could go a long time on this and how much Jesus loves his bride. I would make it into three categories. It's the commitment of friendship. A marriage is, a, is an enlarged a Friendship. I love to talk about the freedom level of communication that we have between spouses. It's a friendship at a, at a tremendous level where you feel free to, to talk about anything. You feel free to discuss the innermost feelings of your heart with your spouse, and you do this, and, and in a little while you're going to get in the car and you're going to drive, and if you're alone with your spouse, there's just going to be an openness about your conversation that doesn't exist with any other person. It's, it's a friendship at an extremely high level. Jesus says, I want you to treat your, your wife like Christ treats the church. John 15, 13, our Lord said, greater love has no man than, than this, that a man laid down, his, laid down his life for his friends, and you are my friends. Talking about Christians, talking about his disciples, members of the church. There's a commitment to friendship here that means, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's how Jesus looks at his bride. I'm telling you, I will never forsake you. And a man says to his wife, unless you drive me away with your infidelity, I will never leave you. No matter what, there's a commitment to that friendship. I would say in the second place, it's the determination of fidelity that I'm going to be faithful to you no matter what. Do you love her? I mean, do you love her? Well, yeah, I love her. Why don't you marry her? Well, I married her because she makes me so happy. Fine. What if things happen in that marriage that change that? What if beyond her control there are things that, that mean she cannot make you as happy as she once did? Do you still love her? Several years ago, Cindy and I were close friends with another preacher and his wife, and they were about our age. They'd been married three or four years. Beautiful couple. Just both of them, just very handsome people and lovely people. But she was, she was teaching a woman to drive who had come into the U.S. from another country, didn't know how to drive, and wanted to get a driver's license. And so this wife was teaching the lady how to drive. And the lady, I don't know what happened, but there was a terrible car accident. 
And the wife of this preacher friend of mine became a paraplegic. She, she had no strength anymore below her waist. She couldn't walk. She'd been in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And, and that's how that was. And so in a very short amount of time, what he envisioned life to be wasn't going to be that way at all. The question is, you stay with her? Do you stay with her? Of course you do. Why? Because I learned from Jesus. I learned from Jesus about the determination of fidelity. Here's Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We're the bride. He's the husband. Who shall separate us? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Many times in my life as a preacher, I have stood beside a casket with a spouse, grieving the loss of a spouse, and made this observation. Now you know. You know that when you stood before that preacher all those years ago and you said, in sickness and in health, in adversity and prosperity, I'm going to forsake all to be faithful to you, you know that you meant it. You had what it takes and you had that commitment. You had that determination of fidelity and you did it. What does it mean to love your wife like Christ loved the church? It means strength of leadership in that man, that husband, be a Christian. And here's back to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26. And he's talking about Christ and his bride, which is the church, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. And Christ makes his bride holy. And we as husbands are charged that you want to be like Jesus as a husband. What we're going to do is to be the spiritual leaders. How many women today who are Christians crave a man, a husband, who will be a great Christian leader in the home. And unfortunately, so many homes are the other way. The wife is the one who is the spiritual leader because the husband's just not so concerned about that. But what a wonderful Christian marriage when a husband is the leader. The husband pushes on to make sure that Jesus is the centerpiece of that family. Lord, show me how to do it. It's true when you talk about how to be a great husband. Here's the third one. When I'm trying to forgive, when I'm trying to forgive, I look to Jesus and Jesus says, I want you to do it this way. Do it like I do it. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. The command to forgive in Christians, I mean, it's, I'm telling you, this is very strong. When Jesus finished the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he said, because if you don't forgive men their trespasses, their sins, neither will your father forgive you your trespasses. That's a great motivator, don't you think? And I learned from Jesus about forgiving, and so here he is on the cross, and can you do this? Would you do this? We learn from Jesus how to forgive. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How do, how do you even do that? I'm talking about people that, that had driven nails into his hands and to his feet, and here he is about to die, and they're the ones murdering him, and yet he's still concerned about their souls. You, are, you, are you that way with your enemies? Are we that way to say, I don't approve what he's doing? I can't. I despise what he's doing. But I don't want him lost. What I really want is some way to influence him to change his life and come to Christ and be a good man. I want her to change her life and come to Christ and be a good woman. 
I don't hate them. I just hate what they're doing. I wish I had an opportunity to, to and I, what I've got to have is this attitude of forgiveness, and that's what Jesus had. Now, when did God answer the prayer of Jesus to forgive these people who were killing him? And the answer is Acts chapter 2, and Peter stood with those others, and he preached, and he said, you, by wicked hands, you've taken and slain this holy one who is Jesus. And they said, what shall we do? And he said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. They repented, and the answer then happened. There was the forgiveness of God. In Luke 17 and verse 3, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. Christians, we've got to be forgiving people. If there's anything that Jesus taught us as disciples of his, it's this. We don't hate people. We don't hate people. We love them, even our enemies. We're going to bless them that curse us and do good to them that hate us. That doesn't mean we approve what they do. It, it just means that we're, we're people who long to forgive. We have forgiving hearts because Jesus taught us how to do that. Now, let's do the next one. Here's number four. This is one of my favorites. When, when I'm having a hard time being happy in life, I can learn from Jesus, and I'm told to learn from him. Now, I want to I bring this one from John chapter 13, and this is this is the King James translation. I believe it's better for this passage. Here's what Jesus said. Now, you remember the atmosphere. It's the Last Supper. I've always thought it's very interesting that you have, Jesus has just a brief few moments before it begins, before, before they're going to come and get him there in the garden, before they're going to take him to Annas and Caiaphas and, and Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate, and the crucifixion's going to happen. And so you have this brief window of time in which you can Try to influence your disciples. What would you talk about if you were Jesus? What would you talk about? I mean, it must be very important for him to raise this. And here's what he does. He takes a towel and he girds himself and he goes and he washes their feet. And bear in mind, that was something that was done for a very practical reason, which we do not have today. But it was, it was something that a, that a servant, a lowly servant would do. Jesus did it. And here they are. They're rather dumbfounded. And Peter says, I'm not going to let you do that. You can't wash my feet. This is inappropriate. You're Jesus. You're my, my master and you're God. And how can I let you wash my feet? And Jesus insisted. And then he taught the lesson. Now, get the lesson. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, bear in mind, he's teaching servanthood. He's not teaching us that when we assemble for worship, we should watch, wash each other's feet. It's about servanthood. It, there, there are ways that we show it today that are characteristic of our time. For I have given you an example. Got it? I'm showing you how to do this. That you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. There's the lesson. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. And then he added this line. So he just, here's Jesus, God, our creator, who, who kneels down and washes the feet of these men. Stinky, smelly feet, dirty feet. He washes their feet. And he says, here's the lesson. You, you serve. You serve other people. And if you do this, you'll be happy. That's a profound lesson right there. What makes people truly happy? Satan and Jesus disagree about this. How would Satan answer that? What makes people truly happy is things. It's the buzz of things, and it's, it's the pursuit of pleasure. 
It's, it's the pursuit of power. It's the pursuit of popularity. And did I mention things? It's about things. And you can see Jesus shaking his head and it's not about things. It's not. It's about people and their relationship to God. It's about family and it's about friends and it's about love and it's about compassion. It's about the church that I came to die for. Happiness comes in serving other people. A counselor one time had a woman who had come to him because she just was so unhappy. He said, here's what I want you to do. Every day I want you to leave your house. I want you to find somebody who truly needs help. And I want you to help them. I'm going to tell you right now, and you've experienced this. You, you want to be happy. You go spend a little time in the nursing home with some of those patients. Just sit and talk for a while. And then when you exit that building, I, I can assure you that what you're going to feel is joy. Not only because you, you, you're not in there. You, you know, you, you breathe the air of freedom. But it's, but it's because you're going to know what it means to, to see on the face of somebody a happiness. And you're the one who helped them. You did that. And it makes you happy. Where would you learn that? Learned it from Jesus who washed the disciples' feet. And he said, now, you know, you, you want to be happy? Let me tell you what to do. You serve one another, and you'll be happy. You'll find it. Here's the last one. When I want to hold tight to my Christianity. Here's Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are, some are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, bear in mind, this comes right on the heels of Hebrews 11 and the roll call of faith. They're they're all dead, but he says it's like, and this is true in your life, the people who have influenced you positively, they live on inside of you. He says, we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance or patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And then this last line, I'm telling you what, this will stick inside of you. Be sure it's inside of you. When you, when you want to hold tight to your Christianity, and sometimes it's hard, Ready? Here it is. You haven't resisted unto blood. Striving against sin. What's he saying? If you need this extra strength, you've just got to look back at the cross and say, I've never had to do that. It may be that I suffer for my faith. It may be that I struggle sometimes to hold on to my Christianity and be what God wants me to be. Because sometimes it's hard. Hold it, hold it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're his disciple. Just just look at him. Just go back and look at him. In particular, look at the cross and say, I haven't done that. It may be hard, but I've never done that before. Life is complicated. The devil wants you out of the church and distance from Jesus. Planting a garden is so much easier than tending one. The same way with the church and with Christianity. I love the verses that say, I want you to obey Jesus, but my favorites are the ones with specific that that say, say something like this, here's how Jesus did it, you do like Jesus did. 
I remember a story from years ago that went like this. There was an old bridge, old wooden bridge, rope and wood that, that came across this chasm. And it was a wide bridge, but it was obviously very old. And a man came up to it and he thought, I just don't, I don't know if this is safe. But he had to get across. He had no choice. And so he got on his hands and knees and he, and he started, he got on one side, looked like the strongest side and began to crawl across that wooden bridge to get to the other side. And when he got about halfway, there was this terrible rumbling sound. And, and the, the bridge began to shake, and he was scared to death, and he turned around, and it was a big truck that went right beside him, crossing the bridge. I like that. Bridge was fine. In our lives, we think about these kinds of struggles, and what a great comfort to look to our Savior and say, you know, this is how you do it. He did it already. He is the example. He is the example. I'm going to give you one more. It's from Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus came to John the Baptist and he said, I want you to baptize me. Now John protested about that because it didn't make any sense. Not to John. I I need you to baptize me. You see, John understood that baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. And how could this be that he who has no sin would baptize or want me to baptize him? I'm the one who has sin. And Jesus said, now, you go ahead and do this, John, because I need to fulfill all righteousness. And what that means is that he needed to show us, even in this, how he wanted us to do it. And so he took him, John did, took Jesus and baptized him. Not not to wash away his sins because he didn't have any sins. He did it to show us, to, to leave us an example. I'm so happy to be a Christian. There may be somebody here this morning who's ready. I I want to serve Jesus Christ. I want to wear his name. I want to be part of the, the body of Christ, the family of God. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. And you can. Repent of your sins. If you've heard the word and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then repent of your sins and confess him and be baptized. Be immersed today for the forgiveness of your sins following the one who said, I I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. If you need the prayers of Christians, now would be such a great time to do that. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.